Here we are again. What is your teaching journey? How did you get involved in teaching? And what has been your teaching career up until today, September 28th, 2023? That is a very good and loaded question. You want the short or the or you want the tall story or the short story? <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Okay. I'll medium size the story. Um, so my teaching interest is, um, or my interest in becoming a teacher really kind of started very young, and that's very common for many educators. Um, and it was an interesting memory that I have in first grade. Um I was very, very shy, believe it or not, and um, I kind of wanted to be invisible most of my um, elementary years. I was like, don't call on me, don't ask me questions. I was just really a very shy person. And the one thing I loved was creating and being an artist. I was in a first grade class, and this was old school, so picture it, everybody's in desks, lined up, straight ahead, looking at a blackboard, you know, alphabet on top. And my first grade teacher was quite strict, very, very strict. And we used to have the teachers, you know, art teacher, music teachers come into the classroom and do the lesson. We go to particular rooms. So our art teacher came in and did a lesson and we made a mosaic butterfly. And I'll never forget it. Um, we had to create this, draw this big butterfly. Then we had all this construction paper and we had to either rip them or cut them into small squares and glue them on this butterfly that we created. And as you would expect, perfectionist Karen was maybe one-fourth done with my mosaic butterfly because I was just very detailed in how to cut perfect squares and the pattern I was making in the wings. And I was just so enthralled with it. And it was time to clean up. And I can remember the pit in my stomach because that was kind of the only time I really felt like alive in a classroom. And the art teacher left and my first grade teacher, the strict teacher came in and, and she started the lesson. I remember her saying, get out some workbook. And I was like, oh, and she, as she was simultaneously get, you know, kind of getting the rest of the class, getting going with this workbook. Um, she came over to me, she handed me my mosaic butterfly with all of my little pieces already pre-cut with glue. And she just said, you know, go to the back of the room, Karen, and you feel free to, you know, I want you to, I want you to finish the butterfly. And I did. And I don't remember anything else in uh, that day. I know it took me a very long time. I remember that she recognized in me something special. And it wasn't about the butterfly. It wasn't about, you know, the actual activity. And really, she wasn't a real warm and fuzzy person. But it was just that moment that I remembered. And I kind of just always replayed that moment. So it was just very natural. I wanted to kind of do that to somebody. I wanted to be that person for other people. And that's what got me into education. I went to Penn State. I applied directly to this College of Education, um, got in, took education classes during my Penn State time, and then I got um, offered the opportunity to student teach overseas in England through Penn State. And... Um, we did an exchange program, went to England, and I taught years one and two, which is five, six, and seven-year-olds combined in a classroom, 30 kids, um, and this uh, little American teacher who was still learning how to teach it herself, um, and uh, 
the um, Meads County Primary School in East Grinstead, England, in West Sussex. And I lived there, and I taught there, and that's where I learned what my philosophy really was in teaching, which was about exploration and play, differentiation, um, teaching each child holistically, looking at each child for in their individual uh, strengths, their needs, and um, you know that's what got me very passionate about curriculum and instruction. Taught kindergarten for 20 years, went to central office, wrote curriculum for pre-K and kindergarten for the school division, loved working with teachers, loved going into classrooms, seeing, you know, that holistic curriculum come to life. And then I thought, you know what, I'm missing, I'm missing kids. And that's what led me as what I'm doing now, which is an assistant principal at uh, a school that is devoted to 500 students under the age of seven. <laughs> So there you have it. Was that medium that was, sized enough? For that was that was good. You had you had <laughs> meaty parts, and you had parts. I forgot that you student taught in England, so I think that was yeah. that's a really that's interesting. Um, if you think about the present tense, mm -hmm. what is your favorite part of being an educator? Oh, really being. Being a part of student stories, um, you know, I really feel like there are times where um, I get to relate to students, to young children, um, that I get to be able to um, have a part in their story. You know, the I hold on to the belief that. Someday, somebody is going to be talking to their tall friend about Dr. Dracinos. And the one day that she saw me in the hallway and she gave me a big hug and said, I love your bow. Like, I hold on to that. Um, because it, it isn't necessarily the day-to-day -day interactions you have with children. It's just the, the belief that you do make a difference. You're not going to see it, probably. And you may, may never, ever know it. But that's, that's the gift of education and also the difficulty um, because you just don't know your impact. So, um, yeah, just that, that belief that you do you have an impact on children and on their future and you're a part of their story. The big part about why I am hoping to get this podcast started over again is I was rereading a book that I read during the pandemic. Uh, and it had a really interesting introduction about uh, working with this person. He ended up, he was, they called him the trillion dollar coach. He like advised Apple and Google and all these people. Uh, but the person that wrote the foreword said that their goal was that there would someday be a help others section the way that there is a self-help section in the libraries and in the bookstores and all the other things. And so I wanted to spend a little time talking about something that I know you and I have talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. And you uh, have 500 of students who are going to school largely for the first time ever, kindergartners yeah. and first graders. And what I'm wondering is, as someone who will very soon send their child to kindergarten and first grade <laughs> for the first time, what are some things that parents can do to help their children be successful in preparation for kindergarten and first grade? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And um, 
it's an actual easy answer. Um, it's not about the academics when we start school. And one of my pet peeves is kindergarten readiness or the phrase school readiness. I don't believe you can define that because when you're born, you're ready to learn. So the only piece of solid suggestive advice that I give families and I'll continue to give families is to allow and encourage your student, your child to play with other like aged peers. Observe their interactions and do what a coach would do. Give feedback, praise, and then give a suggestion. So, for example, a lot of times you think, oh, let's have a play date, and then the parents are in another room, and you're not really kind of watching what's happening. You know they're safe and they're having a good time. Actually watch how your child interacts with other children. And then say, hey, you know, oh, I love how you uh, gave, you know, Billy that toy. I, I loved that. Did you all so excited to get that toy? That's called being a good friend. You made somebody's heart really happy. Have those conversations about the interactions that your child has with other children. Because coming to school, the most important thing is the experiential learning and is the socialization. Because educators, we're born and we're built to teach literacy, math. We're, we're, we're going to teach them the content. They're going to learn the content. But let them practice being a kid with other kids. Um, because we're going to be doing that in school, but they will be one step ahead. Um, and, and then we are able to focus on some of those those academic skills. Um, talking to your child, having conversations with your child, and, you know, really observing them in their natural habitat, which is play. So I was hoping that you would say that. I know that that was something that even <laughs> before I had my own children, I remember sitting at our desks across from each other and you saying that that was the key, like, you should play with your kids uh, and watch them play with other kids. And um, that, that socialization element, um, it's worked. I don't have perfect kids. Uh, we had our kind hands discussion right before we started recording. Um, she's, she's not perfect, but uh, I feel like she has been well acclimated to a lot of settings because we had done some of those things. So I, I can be a testament to some of that. Play is their natural habitat, their natural ability um, that's what they're born to do, right? They're born to interact and they're born to engage with others. They're born to play. That's their learning. That's their interaction. That's their work. Play is the work of the young child. Tell me about um, some of the things that you feel like really helped your teaching journey. So were there times, places, spaces, books, experiences that helped you that you're like, man, I was a different person, different educator coming out of that. My little curriculum book, reading a scripted lesson, that's not teaching. Um, so that was a really big eye opener for me. The creative journey of what that entails and the creativeness and the trust that educators overseas were given to teach the curriculum. And what I mean by that is it's a lot of work, but it was meaningful. Um, in England, they have a national national curriculum, and so they just have what we would have, our, our um, SOLs in Virginia, standards of learning. 
they don't have any curriculum to help that teacher teach those standards. They themselves create integration. They themselves teach thematically. And how they do that is they ask the students what you want to learn about. And they then create that integrated curriculum piece. Um, the other opportunity I have stemming from that is that passion of integrated curriculum. And so um, taking that into account, um, that's what I got my master's in, uh, integrated curriculum. And I had the opportunity to do a presentation at a um, university. And lo and behold, who was sitting in my session was Grant Wiggins. The Grant Wiggins. The Grant Wiggins. He happened to be the keynote speaker at Roanoke College at um, Margaret Sue Copenhagen um, Institute, and I was presenting. And he came up to me afterwards, and I presented about this type of learning. And he said to me, spot on. Wow. And I was like, whoop. Um, he had, you know, that was a, a year or two before he had passed away, and it's just a gift, a, a moment of like, yeah. whoa, that was, first of all, like, starstruck, and then also like, wow, I got a stamp of approval. That's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, and then I, I would say another very big experience is I decided to take the first teaching job I ever got offered after Penn State. I just wanted to just go and teach. And I got offered a school at in Capitol Heights called Carmody Hills Elementary School. It's in PG County, but it's about two minutes away from DC. It was a, how they classified it, racially non-diverse Title I school. And what that meant was on our demographics, it was 99.9% .9 African-American. My first year teaching, and was there for nine years. But that first year, second year, I would get calls in the office saying, I, you know, a family doesn't want their child to have the white teacher. And at first I thought, like, that's so hurtful. I, I, my feelings are hurt. And then I realized, no, that, no. My job now is to prove that I will love their children because they're going to be my children. By the end of me leaving, and the only reason why I left was my husband, John, got transferred, and so the military, and we moved. I had families calling to say, I want my kid in her class. Um, I became a part of the community. And that's when I realized how important it is as educators to become a part of the community in which you teach. Because you can't do it in a silo. You can't. Your classroom door needs to be open to the community. And you need to become a part of that um, to truly reach the students. And so that was another opportunity that I'm very, very thankful and blessed that I had because it put a lot of things into perspective for me. And I believe I'm a different educator because of that. Best book or resource that you have found helps others build their capacity? Or has built yours? To be a teacher or to be a human? All of the above. Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. I knew you were going to pick that one. Perry. I knew you were going to pick that one. I almost didn't ask because I knew it was going to be that one. <laughs> I wish I could sit here and tell you. I mean, I have so many books that are in the education genre. 
um, that are great texts about curriculum and about um, feedback and about X, Y, and Z, and they're all great. But if you're an educator, you have got to be a person who loves human development. And with that, you have to love the highs and the lows of the individuals you teach. You've got to understand that the experience of people, no matter how old our children are or how young they are, you come with experiences and those experiences are perceptions and oftentimes that leads to trauma. And you have to be cognizant of that because you're not teaching silhouettes of people. You're teaching hearts. And yes, we're trying to build the mind. You're teaching hearts. You're teaching little humans, big humans. You have to know what that entails. That book, and I've read it four times, and those folks out there listening to this who know me, I've shared that book to many people. I have notes all around it. They're like, you are, it's just way too distracting for them to read the book that's actually notated. Um, you will cry. You will have to put it down and pick it up at a later time. It just, it hits your heart. And um, I'm a big fan of Dr. Bruce Perry, um, who is a psychiatrist, um, is a, has a PhD, an MD, um, neurosequential work he does, um, but he has shed some light on this. And not a lot of educators could think that this would be a book that would be for them. It's a book for anybody, but particularly educators, I would highly recommend. Put that on your holiday list, um, and you won't be sorry that you would have read that book. You will be taking those stories with you for for the the betterment of children that you teach. Two more. The next one is a little bit loaded, but not terrible. Okay. You've worked with a lot of teachers. You've been a teacher for a period of time. You're yep, an experienced you're an experienced and accomplished educator. What are the traits and dispositions that you found among elite teachers, advanced proficient teachers, and what are some ways that you feel like they go about cultivating those skills? I think one of the qualities that teachers, highly qualified or, or evolving into a highly qualified teacher, need to have is what I call teacher bones. And those teacher bones consist of a desire to love kids for who they are. Um, great moments and hard moments. A foundation of development how an understanding how um, to teach um, and I would say a desire to continue learning so if you got teacher bones see then 
individuals in central office and individuals at university levels, we'll put the meat on your bones. We'll build you up, right? We'll give you the tricks, the tools, the muscles, the fat. We'll, we'll, we'll give you those things. It's not going to stick unless you have those bones. You've got to have those bones. Um, and a part of that is being receptive to honing your craft, being receptive to continuing to learn, um, being receptive for new ways, um, and being open to the feedback that others give. I'm not saying administrators, not, I mean, I would hope you'd be open to, open to some administrators, but open to feedback, open to parent feedback, be willing to be a listener and be receptive. You're adding on to those teacher bones. Um, I think in my experience, the teachers that I have supported, the teachers that have seed in action are most successful who have those foundational skills and understanding and have that desire to want to do more for their kids and for themselves as a profession. Last one. Okay. In your setting, what is the word or phrase you use most often? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I call all of my students love. I say that a lot. Hi, love. Good morning, love. Um, it's in term of endearment. My Nana is... She's passed away, but she was Irish. And it was something she always said, and she would say it to everybody. Oh, good morning, love. How are you? Would you like a cup of tea, love? Um, and so I just started to call my students when I taught love or love bugs. Um, and so I say that all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I call them loves, my loves. I mean, that's better than, like, stop or <laughs> whatever it, it could be. Um, but, um, I also say one other, I, that's the word I say, but there's a phrase I say, phrase I say. And I say, well, you can fix it. So when students are having a rough moment, acknowledging their feelings, and oftentimes I do deal with a lot of discipline as assistant principal, and I'll say, well, all right, well, that's over. Put that mistake in a bubble, blow it away. You can fix it. You can fix it. And I, I, I say it to my own kids. All right, it's a mistake. No big deal. You can fix it. And then we talk about how you're going to fix it. You want to apologize to somebody. You want to say something different. You want to do something different. We're human, so you can fix it. It's, it's fixable. Everything is fixable.